0: So, we are in a series called Salt and Light. This is the third week of the series. And it's a series where we've we've been asking the question how should we, as the church and as disciples of Jesus, right, as the community of Jesus, how should we impact culture around us, society around us? Um, What kind of impact should we have, and, and how do we go about doing that? And so, the reason this series is called Salt and Light again is because it's one of the main metaphors Jesus uses to describe the type of influence his church should have on the world around it. And Jesus is kind of a big deal around here. He's uh, a guy we look to from time to time uh, for what the church should be about right now. So if Jesus goes, this is what matters then we should seek to, to do that very thing, to be about that very thing. So um, we're going to look again. We've been in the same passage for two weeks. This will be our third week. And in, in a sense, we're going to have a fourth week on it in a few weeks. Um, but uh, if you guys have Bible, turn to Mar- uh, Matthew chapter 5. Again, this is, the context is Jesus speaking. And we'll pick up in verse 13. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all uh, who are in the house. Now, again, uh, Jesus is saying this is the type of effect the church should have on the world. It should be like what salt does and what light do. But Jesus is simultaneously saying there is a way to do church that is neither salty in a good way. Again, we got to reclaim the phrase, we're salty. And there's a way to do church that isn't being a light, And so uh, and that's not being harsh on the church. And so the last few weeks we've had to talk about there are really rough parts about the church that Jesus wants to change. Uh, And there are really beautiful things that the church does when it's living this out. And there's a tension with sinful people who are in the middle of of becoming like Jesus, which is what the church is. But Jesus himself saying there's a way to be the church that, um, in a sense, violates the purpose of the church. But the beauty in this is that we can always course correct and go, hey, this is what we are called to be. Again, salt without saltiness—it's just white sand. Okay, great for a beach, not good to put on a snack. Uh, light that you can't see—it it, it, just—it's just darkness. That's called darkness. Just so you guys know—it's a big uh, theological idea, right? It's just darkness. And then Jesus closes with this. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may uh, see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Uh, Scholars for years, again, have stated that to understand what Jesus is calling the church to be, we need to understand how the original audience viewed both salt and light. And so two weeks ago, uh, we dove into the idea of what it means to be salts. There's a couple different things you could look at. If you want to listen to the sermon, you can. Uh, but some of the things that I think the ancient world would have uh, thought of pretty quickly when they thought through salts was, uh, was that salt is valuable. Salt changed flavor. Salt preserves. And salt makes you thirsty. And then we, got, we kind of dove into what that could look like as a church. And then last week, we began to look at the idea of what it means to be light together. Now, the light, uh, by the way, one interesting idea, the light here doesn't originate with us. This is really important. A lot of people point this out. Jesus himself in the gospel says, I am the light of the world. And then he's saying, the church, you are the light of the world. And, uh, and, and what most people would say is, is that we are a re- reflective light. So we're not the origin, we're not the light source, but we reflect that light to the world around us. Does that make sense? So the light originates with Jesus, but as the church, we're called to be a reflected light. And so uh, last week, uh, I had an outline that I will continue on today. And I said that in the ancient world, light did a couple things. Light uh, light created, and and today still creates at some level, light created safety. And I talked about this idea of being a safe church that in the ancient world, when you went out at night, you did not have uh, besides like literally torches uh, or can like you didn't have uh, electricity in the way that we have it today. You didn't have access to it with power grids. You didn't have cell phones that not only gave you light, but also gave you directions. Uh, you lived in a world where there were uh, plenty of robbers and, uh, and plenty of wild animals. And, uh, and then it, you live in the, in the desert. So, so again, it is dangerous to go out at night by yourself. Where there was light, it was a much safer situation. Um, but light does two other things. And we're looking look at one especially today. Um, light also creates exposure. In other words, something that is hidden right in front of you in pitch black darkness is uh, very visible when the light comes on. You see clearer, uh, and that leads to my my third point, light creates clarity. And so again, last week we talked about this idea of light creating safety. Uh, Today we're going to look at the second two ideas here. And so we'll look at the first one right now. So, So light creates exposure. Light creates exposure. Now, if you were to grab like a myriad of commentaries on Matthew's gospel, uh, and you were looking at this passage, you'd probably see a lot of people talk, when they think of exposure, the exposing aspect of light, often what they talk about is how the church can prophetically expose things in the culture around it. Uh, they think of the, the, the church confronting the sin in the culture around it, the church being involved in bringing down uh, systems of uh, injustice and uh, oppression and violence Um, and, uh, yeah, in, 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 in a society that, that doesn't have, where society doesn't live out the kingdom, we go, Hey, there's a better way. This is wrong. And so, so we call out, uh, hypocrisy and sin in the broader society. Now that's true. And it is an important, um, component of what it means to be the church. But before we can be that, I believe there are things we need to do to prepare for the work to impact society in that way. And so, in, in a sense, I, I'm saying yes and amen to, like, we want to expose stuff in the broader society. That is, again, Jesus is talking about how the church impacts society. However, there's a lot of teaching, especially in the New Testament, about the, and it's all throughout the Old as well, that um, before we can prophetically engage the world around us, before we can be a light to the world, like in the Old Testament as Abraham's family, we have to have our house in order. We need to worry about uh, ourselves. God is interested in people who take their own sins seriously before pointing out the sins of others. And if we don't do this, we lose, and this has happened throughout church history, when we don't do this, we lose both the authority and the legitimacy to push back on culture when we look just like culture, when we're not owning our own sin. And so again... uh, our main text is Matthew 5. It's a, a part of, uh, it's, it's a part of a teaching Jesus gives, calls the Sermon on the Mount. Later on in that same sermon, Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 2, he says, For you will be judged um, by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a, a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. And the, the, the idea Jesus is getting at here is when we lack, the self, when we lack self-awareness, we tend towards self-righteousness. We lack self awareness, we tend towards self righteousness. And you might have experienced this at times where you're like, you really clearly see what's going on with someone else. And if you were to, if you were to honestly take stock for a second, you're like, we're, I'm kind of like that too. I did that yesterday, I did that this morning. We also see it, uh, again, this isn't the same context as impacting society, but the principle of, of uh, self-awareness can lead to self-righteousness. And on the flip side, self-awareness can also lead to beautiful, uh, loving service. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, so this would be someone um, kind of in a, a state of habitual sin where they don't know how to get out. They're in a pattern of sin and dysfunction that is just—it's it, it, happening, and they can't get out of it. They need help. They can't get out of it on their own, and they need uh, people t- to help them. It says this: it says restore such a person with a gentle spirit. That's so important. When we're dealing with the issues of others, we do it gently. Where churches are a nightmare, again, is when there's self-righteousness and a lack of self-awareness, we hurt people because we treat them like they're not humans, like they're not like you. And, and he gets it, he says, do it with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourself so that you also won't be tempted, that as you're restoring someone from a sin, that you yourself would be enticed by it because we're weak, man. Right opportunity, right time. Right interaction, right insecurity, right fear, right moment of anger mixed with circumstances, mixed with a heart already prone to sin. And, man, you're not—you could do a lot of the things that other people do. And so— um he says, watch out for yourselves that you also will not be tempted. Verse 2 says, carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Again, this idea, we need to be self-aware of who we really are. And then at the corporate level, as we speak into society, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 says, for the time has come for judgment to begin with God's households. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome, outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? Now, again, clear teaching throughout the Old Testament into the new. Self-righteousness keeps us from engaging with people the right way. Again, uh, there's a space and a place to call out culture. We need to do that. We, don't, we shouldn't participate or be complicit in the really broken parts of our culture. And when we do that, you look back in history Hundred years time, like man, the church was just like the world. And we, we want to be prophetically different in the live lives that are good and beautiful and true. But we have to acknowledge first where well, we're not doing that. Want to be really clear: we want to speak out prophetically, but we got to do it as we uh, as humble people who acknowledge we are prone to some of these same things. Um, so, so he says, judgment starts with the household of God. Um, Another thing I want to point out, uh, and, by, and we might be like, what does this have to do with salt and light? Again, um, before we expose society, we have to allow our own hearts to be exposed. You can't go out on mission and be self-righteous. You can't go out on mission and represent Jesus if you think you're better than everyone. That's where, like, the self-righteous Christian caricature comes from. It's not always a caricature. Uh, me, Adam and Royce, man, we were, uh, we were a thing I never thought I'd say. We were in Salt Lake City, Utah, walking around, <laughs> <laughs> and mean, we and we went to the Mormon like temple thing to like see it, and uh, and man, these—they're having like some big meeting, and there was these guys, huge signs, Mormons, you believe doctrines of demons, and it was like, man, what a way to start a convo, right? And and I'm listening, uh, and again, we 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 definitely wouldn't agree with Mormon teaching or theology. There's a lot wrong with it. It's not—you know—we go on and on. It's—I would say it's false. However, uh, listening to these guys talk to people, I mean, it's just brutal. Like, I don't know that you're doing Christianity either because you have no grace. You're angry at these people. who let's just say it is false teaching and they're deceived. You're angry at them for being deceived. Think about that. When throughout the New Testament, we're said that any knowledge we have of Jesus is a gift God gives us. He saved us not because of our goodness. He saved us by grace. What Sarah got at earlier. And so again, if we're self-righteous, we're going to struggle to love the people around us. We're going to judge them and look down on them. And so we have to kill self-righteousness if we're going to be salt and light. Again, before we can expose the broken world around us, we need to have our own hearts exposed before God. And a way that we can do that is through the spiritual discipline of confession. The spiritual discipline of confession. 1 John 1, 9. It says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sins, something beautiful happens. Uh, Pete Grieg, a uh, church leader from the UK, describes the power of confession this way. He says, Whenever our dirty little secrets, which flourish like fungi in the darkness, are exposed to the surgical brilliance of his light. We can try to conceal them like Adam and Eve who hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Or we can pretend they're not there like the Pharisee praying, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Or we can hold up our hands and confess them like the tax collector crying out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Truly, says Jesus, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Pete adds, you probably take a regular bath or shower to remove the dirt from your body. In the same way, you are invited to come to God daily praying, cleanse me and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Without this discipline, you will begin to stink Behaviors that would once seem shameful or even shocking will become tolerated to you, accommodated by you, and eventually normalized as your conscience is numbed. But by confessing your sins regularly, your life will smell sweet. You will be healthy and holy, a little bit more like Jesus each day. Um... One of the key ideas about the gospel is, is, is that we are justified by faith. We learned about it. We taught through Romans for a year. We just finished that series. We're made right with God, not by the good stuff that we do, but by what Jesus did for us in his life, death, and resurrection. And that he gives us, um, he gives us his righteousness, the comments where were at, they were, it was really fascinating. They were talking about um, the gospel, and one guy just said, He said, You know, um, on paper, theoretically, the American justice system says that you are innocent before proven guilty. The gospel says you're guilty and then gives you the gift of innocence. And so, since we, we know day one, I'm so bad Jesus had to die for me, I'm so loved, to, you know, he was glad to die for me, you know, the, the, the Kellerism, um, because that's true, I don't need to justify myself anymore. Like, I don't have to do it. Paul Tripp calls it firing your inner uh, PR, your inner lawyer. He goes, no, no, there's a reason. I'm better than you think. Nope, right? I have so many excuses for myself and so little grace for others, and you do too at your worst. That that doesn't need to be us. Confession reminds us of that. Again, when we don't confess, we begin to stink, and it's a tough smell to cover up. I remember in high school, uh, I think you guys know this looking at me, I was an athlete. And uh, I think you definitely know this once you've heard that statement that I was a mediocre athlete, man, but I had heart. And I'd be very physically active all day. Uh, Plus I was in my teens. And so I often smelled real funky at the end of the day, a whole day going to a school that didn't have air conditioning. Uh, in the beginning of fall and it's still hot. August to me is September. It can be hotter than July, honestly. So it's September, no AC all day, you know, freshly pubescent smells, then a PE class, then football practice. Um, at the end of the day, it was rough. And I remember one time after a football practice, I got invited to a party. And, uh, and I just remember I didn't have time to go home to take a shower, and I had to kind of FOMO going, and I didn't want to miss out. And I just remember, I was like, you know what I could do? I could put a grip of cologne on. And so I pulled out, uh, I don't know if you guys remember this, cl- I don't know if this cologne still exists. Uh, it's a very middle-of-the-road cologne, I'm sure, as they go. Uh, I pulled out Curve. You guys remember Curve? And I, uh, and I was like, you know what? Because I'm smelling so bad right now, I'll throw extra on. Crush it, right? Go to the party, just people are gonna love it. I was like, man, it's an organic smell. I'm like, dude, it's an organic smell. (laughs) Um and I just remember walking to a party carrying the blended aroma of the cheap cologne curve mixed with body odor and thinking, I haven't made my smell myself smell good. I'm smelling some kind of way, but it sure isn't good. And I felt even more insecure, like like because we're in high school, like we're all getting smelly. Everyone in the room's got a smell situation. At some point throughout the week, at this age, going to this school, um, but what I did to cover it up made it even. That's what I'm embarrassed about. It's like, dude, what is going on? Like the cologne and the, the stuff. What I did to make it better, catch this. What I did to make it better added to my embarrassment. I added to my own shame. I added to my my uh, my smell. And this is what the Christian life is like when we don't confess sin and we hide and pretend we're better than we actually are. In their epic book on the spiritual discipline of confession, I can't recommend it enough. It's a book called Spiritual Detox. If you want to read a book just on the discipline of con- confession, uh, it's written by um, Howard and Sally Sat. Oh, that's a tough name. Sat uh, Grant- uh A friend of mine knows them, and I, I can't say their name. Uh, but they lead a church in London, and uh, they say this uh, in a similar vein. They say, um, failing to confess is like not taking the trash out, the bin. The stench of guilt blocks out the aroma of Christ. You lose fellowship with God. This is the context of 1 John 1.9. Fellowship, 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 fellowship. We've written it four times because John wrote it four times in the verses leading up to 1 John 1.9. Fellowship, not salvation, is repeated. And fellowship is about close companionship with a God of joy. Noticing, as we, are, as we said already, that the perfection of joy is the first purpose statement of John's letter. They add, in the words of the brilliant pastor-theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in confession, there occurs a breakthrough to an experience of the cross. In confession. Confession is the key that unlocks the treasure chest a person receives when they cross the line of faith. Too many followers of Jesus live as spiritual paupers when God has given them the code of confession to enter in and rejoice inside the enormous vault of God's abundant love and mercy. Now, when we sin and we cover it up and we like get away with it, in a sense, we kind of avoid eye contact with God, um, there's a relief that comes with that. Like there is. You're like, whew, okay. No one saw that, right? There's been times I've been driving around North Park, and I thought to myself after, did anyone see me? Now, I wasn't road raging. I was trying to fight anyone, but some illegal U-turns from time to time. i a man of the cloth, right? Uh, but you just have these moments where you're like, ah, man, I did this thing, or I thought this thing, or I said this thing. And and, uh, and especially you know, if the worse you feel about it, the more you want to cover it up. And when people don't know about it, you can start to assume God doesn't know about it, and it can feel Good. So there is relief in hiding. But family, there is so, there's a much greater release when the truth is out there. If you've ever experienced this, like it's just, it's out there for real, and you're loved in the moment. You're received in the moment. You're accepted in the moment. Not condoning the the broken, dysfunctional, sinful thing you're doing, but condoning who you are and reaffirming who you are made in the image of God, that you're actually, you're you're above this thing. You've been redeemed by Jesus. You're above this thing. You're living beneath your privileges. It's not that sin's for bad boys or bad girls or whatever. It's like sin's beneath you, right? Like like you've been given the palate of like a gourmet chef, and you're like messing around with Cheerios on the floor at a a daycare center. It's like, dude, you don't need to eat that way. I know you're used to it might be how you grew up. It might be the, the way of life handed to you, but you don't need to live that way anymore. And so that comes out. But then on top of that, they go, this is bad, but Jesus is good, and I love you. Because I, I love you, I want you to be free from this thing, which is bad. And so confession is when we expose ourselves to God and we allow ourselves to, to let him be gracious to us or experience him being gracious to us. He's more gracious to you than you'll ever know all the time. So often, and I've heard this before, like people kind of, um, for like 10 years ago, man, there's like all these sermons from like megachurch guys, and they were like, uh, I'm so tired of hearing Christians, sin, confess, sin, confess, sin, confess. It's like, what's the other option? Jesus says, <laughs> like the pressure you put on people, I mean, Jesus says like every day in the Lord's Prayer, you're going to need to ask God to forgive you. For your trespasses. That might bum you out, right? And, and, and in some ways, it's like, I meant, I want to become like Jesus, so I don't want to have sin to confess. But you have to also realize, I hope it's it's helpful knowing that Jesus goes, that's gonna happen though. You're slowly being set free. It's like sin confessing. And by the way, I think most people don't sin confess. I like think they sin, 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 feel bad, avoid it for a while, don't think about it, do something so feel better. But, like, like genuinely taking 30 minutes with your own thoughts in the presence of God saying, search me. Saying, God, show me where I'm at right now. And the way that with our phones, man, there's like the, the, the blue dot or your red dot. Where am I at in this moment? We're we walking around Salt Lake City. I'm like, there's a lot of weird buildings. I don't know where I'm at. And GPS saves the day. Here's where I'm at right now. That God, in the same way, God, where am I actually at spiritually, relationally, emotionally, What have I done? Who have I done it to? What am I in danger of? Please forgive me. Please empower me. You're not doing that every day. And like you're getting worse, like like I promise. So sin confess, it's good. It's actually like at a a liturgical liturgical church, they, they lead the congregation through confession corporately every week go to Episcopalian church, Catholic church, Presbyterian church, like there's a sin of confession and a sin of pardon, and there's a beauty in pardon. Communion should be a time when we reflect on the fact, uh, again, I'm so bad Jesus had to die, but I'm so loved he was glad to die. That doesn't create a flippancy with sin, it creates gratitude. Why well, I want to love and obey Jesus, not because I have to, because I, because I want to. It's been so good to me. And so what is confession? Confession is exposing ourselves to God Again, I love the name of that book, "Spiritual Detox." It's like detox. Throughout church history, confession has been compared to vomiting. Vomiting. Now, vomiting—kind gr- of gross. Last time to used the word, gross. But what makes it awful, right? There's there's a stench, and there's uh, I'm like, I'm not going to talk about it, but I'm going to describe it, uh, <laughs> right? There, there's a stench. There's an unpleasantness. There's like you feel the all that stuff's going on. Um, but you need to know in that moment, what's making that awful is not the action. It's the thing that your body's saying, I got to get this out. And that's why shortly thereafter, you're like, I feel better, right? There's a phrase like, uh, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. It's like, everyone wants to feel better, but no one wants to throw up to get there. But sometimes you need to. You guys, they can quote me on that, you guys. That's, that's w- wisdom. <sighs> And so it's unpleasant, but what is happening is it usually makes you feel better because what was inside of you, you're going, this is so bad, it's got to get out. Um, The Greek word for confess, uh, homo legio, uh, again, homo is is the same. Uh, It means to say the same thing. God, I'm agreeing with you. I'm saying the same thing about my sin that you're saying. I'm not um, pretending or justifying. I'm going, this is bad, and it's on me, right? Right. uh, one of the, uh, one of the wild things, co- one of the, I mean, one of the wildest things I've ever seen in my life, this Will Smith slap situation, I couldn't believe it, like, I couldn't believe it, uh, and I was like, this is the wildest thing I've ever seen on TV. Not only did he take a minute to be able to take a, a little bit of responsibility, a- as it moved forward, everyone started to come out of the woodwork to explain away what happened, uh, like we're, we're getting into his history, which he hasn't even brought to the table in this way. We're getting into um, his childhood. We're getting into, I mean, we are, um, we're psychoanalyzing him as a culture, to figure out how could this happen in this moment. Now, again, all of those things matter. So I want to say something really quick. Um, we, are, we are all about uh, good Christian therapy as a church. In the last week I have referred two people to good Christian therapists, okay? Uh, very pro-Christian um, therapy. Okay, I'm considering getting my MFT, uh, not to stop being a pastor, but to slowly, like, I really value that work. I really value pastoral care. I really value uh, counseling broadly. We ha- we have a, To this day, we have a clinical psychologist on staff with our church, right? So we value that. But there's a difference between uh, the, using the tool of therapy that can be good and having a, a like, therapeutic culture, which functionally doesn't believe in sin anymore. Well, I grew up this way, so I do. It's like, yes, that's all true. This is the unique way your sin expresses itself, but you still have responsibility. I, I promise, I, we can get into why everyone does awful things, and there's always really awful things that have happened to them, but, but part of growing and maturing is going, that wasn't my fault, but how I show up moving forward is my responsibility. And I want to get into this whole thing on Will Smith. Generally, we all do this. And so my fear is, again, we want to have spaces to process and heal, but that's not at the expense of taking ownership for what is our responsibility. Good counselors, they will tell you, we do this all the time, good counselors will tell you, hey, you're feeling guilty for something that is not your responsibility. That, that's, that, that is, that's not you. That's the other person. You need, whatever, you need to have a hard conversation. Or you needs to be a boundary here. Or you need to release yourself from expectations to be more than you are, more than you could be, right? But there is also a space to say, simultaneously, here's what you can own, though. Here's what is your fault. Not just your thing to cope with to get around their stuff, but, but actually for you to change and grow and heal. This is so hard for us to do as people. An uh, author named uh, Dave Faubert, he says that the non-apology apology has become popular because many of us deep down don't believe we've done anything wrong. Uh, and he has—he actually wrote an article uh, called "The Art of the Non- Apology," or it's called "How to Apologize Without Actually Apologizing." And he—he he lays that he's got a couple different variations of this. He's not a Christian, by the way. He says, "I'm sorry to anyone who was offended," meaning, "I'm sorry you took offense, but that doesn't mean it was offensive. Just that you may be easily offended. So this is your fault, but I'm a better person than you." Uh, again, "I'm sorry you feel that way," meaning, "I'm sorry you're upset." But other people weren't, so actually you must have the problem here. Um, this is a favorite of uh, politicians. Uh, mistakes were made. <laughs> Usually means by others, not me. Uh, another one, I'm only human. Meaning because we all make mistakes, none of us are responsible for them. Again, like man, it just <laughs> imagine, imagine a crashing. Uh, anytime I drive by a Tesla, I'm just stressed. I have a car insurance, I'm still stressed out. I so spent a lot of time growing up where our family didn't have car insurance. we get stressed out around certain cars. And I, whatever, it triggered me or whatever again, ther- therapeutizing this. Uh, but but I, uh, I, I got close. Uh, whenever I get close, I get stressed. Like you imagine, like, smashing into a Tesla, no car insurance? You're like, I'm only human, man. I'm only human, girl. It's like, cool. So as a human, you owe me money. Uh, kind of a lot. So true confession, by contrast, begins with accepting responsibility. It's coming out from hiding. You're you're not being exposed. You're exposing your own sin. And as we do that, we gain the right to expose the sins of our culture around us, to fight for justice, and to call out the things that are wrong. Last thing I want to say about this, uh, too. um, It's become real in vogue um, for people who are supposed to be Christians to talk about how messed up the church is. Uh, church has always been messed up. If you have a New Testament, you know that. Uh, what it, what's new is people critiquing the church as Christians, acting like they're not a part of it. Uh, it's like, man, the church, man, the church is so whack. I was like, dude, if you're not a part of the church, you're not in Christ. Right? The church can't, we need to fight, we need to work to change stuff, where, where, where change needs to happen, reparative stuff needs to happen. There have been real, um, real spaces of wounding real spaces of emotional, spiritual, sexual abuses, all that stuff where the church was like the world. Again, it loses its right to push back on it. Um, we want to do that, but simultaneously, we have to also keep asking ourselves the question as an, as an individual follower of Jesus. You can, hi- you, you can actually hide behind calling out the church's sin and not look at your own, which again, leads to a different kind of self-righteousness. And, and so... Um, and so confession is good for us if we can actually confess and, and take out the things that we hide behind. So who do we confess to? Um, uh, you know, again, in, in the context of First John, it's God himself. There's nothing wrong with, conf- we're, we're called in James and even other parts of First John to, to, to confess to one another. Um, but, but again, I, I think that that's, in First John, it's assumed that you've already done it to God. First, I think you're going to struggle to confess to another brother or sister if God hasn't revealed to you where you're at. Does that make sense? So again, I think God's the primary one. Um, it's definitely not social media. <laughs> you know, we have a lot of pseudo confessions on social media. I'm con- I'm confessing that I'm going to be brave and cut out toxic people. You're like, I don't know if that's confession. Uh, could be a good move, but And First John he says we we need to start by confessing to. God himself. And so what I want to do in close, I want to call Marielle up and I wanted to challenge you to, to, to allow yourself to be exposed, to, to expose your own heart to God. Let's go, God, where, where I am not following you, where, where I am astray, where my heart is, is far from you, I want to know that. Would you reveal that to me? Not because I want to be crushed Jesus was crushed for me. This isn't about feeling guilty, but it's about being honest about where I'm at, that I could turn to him in a fresh way again. So what I want to do, um, before we even take communion, I ask Mar if she'd be willing to strum. And I want you to just take uh, five minutes, which might feel like an eternity to you guys. Let's take five minutes to not talk, not grab coffee, not even ask someone for prayer. Let's just in this moment say... um, Father, where am I far from you? And by the way, if you're here and you're like, man, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm not going to confess to a God I don't believe in. That's totally fine. Uh, I want to encourage you to enjoy uh, watching Christians feel guilty. Okay? Uh, <laughs> just kidding. But seriously, no pressure to do something you don't feel comfortable with. If you're like, hey, I- I'm not comfortable with this. You can feel free to grab coffee, whatever. Check your, check your phone. Do what you want to do. Uh, but for those um, who are followers of Jesus, I want to call you for a second to just ask God to search you and reveal um, where you're far from him. Uh, hit the lights, yeah. I encourage you to keep your eyes closed Love to continue to pray. I'm going to read um, from Psalm 51, a prayer of confession written by David. It says, be gracious to me, Yahweh, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin." For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. I'm going to highlight verse 4 here. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. So in this moment now, I want to challenge you to take the, the things that are coming to mind and to agree with God about them. You are right, God. Please forgive me. Cleanse me. You're right about this. And I admit that. But would you also cleanse me? Would you forgive me? reading in Psalm 51, verse 10. David says, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Then he says this, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Right now in this moment, would you continue to pray and pray that prayer. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for cleansing me. Whether I'm feeling it fully right now, thank you that that's true, Jesus. 1 John 1.9 says you promised to do it and that means you did it if I confessed. Would you restore joy to me? Would you give me a willing spirit, not a spirit that's pressured or religiously forced to obey you? Would you give me a willing spirit? Pray something like that. you prayed to ask uh, Jesus to forgive you, this might feel like a youth camp in a second, but if you ask Jesus to forgive you, um, I'm not going to ask you to to say what you were forgiven for, but if you asked him to forgive you, if you confess to him, um, would you raise your hand? Just keep them up for a second. Now, we're not a liturgical church, um, but I want to say to you, um, if your hand's raised, and I just want to name a few of them, Sam Brown, your sins are forgiven. Parker Brown, your sins are forgiven. Hillary Richards, your sins are forgiven. Emma Latino, your sins are forgiven. Steve Hopkins, your sins are forgiven. There's more hands than I can get to in this moment, but church, I want to say to you, you are clean. When you confess, whether you feel it, it's true. First John 1 9, it's true. You put your hands down now. Please look at me, church. You're clean. You're forgiven. In this moment, you may need work to do. Right, coming out of this, from a clean, uh, a space of of, I'm clean to go. Okay, how how can I continue to to fight sin? But 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 you'll get there, and you shouldn't. Again, David says, you know, give me a spirit to do right, willing spirit to do right in the future. But before that happens, you're clean. In this moment clean, you're forgiven, you're saved, you're safe. And then that leads to Psalm 51, the very end of, of the passage, or the end of the passage I was reading. Paul, uh, uh, David says, then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. See, we can only go out when we know that we're good in our relationship with God. We can only go out well. And so what I want you right now is take communion, and just pray a, a prayer of commissioning over us that we could go out as we've experienced returning to God that we might go out and do that same thing. So if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, which means you've, you've trusted both in his life, death, and resurrection for salvation, and you trust him as a disciple, you, you're following him with your life, um, feel free to take communion. If that doesn't describe you, um, please refrain from taking communion. We're not trying to exclude you. It's just, uh, it's, it's a moment where we're saying we do trust that. And if you want to trust that today, by the way, we'd love to um, teach you about that. And, and, and you can take your first communion today. But in this moment, until you're sure about that, um, we'd ask that you refrain. But for those who are followers of Jesus uh, right now in this moment, um, go ahead and take out the, the juice and the wafer. I did hear a rumor we could have the communion table back soon with the COVID numbers where they're at. Go ahead and pray and we'll, we'll take it. Jesus, thank you for doing for me what I could not do for myself. Thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you that the only reason why you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins is because the justice was satisfied on the cross. We're not doing double jeopardy. You have already paid for our sin. And so it's actually just, not just merciful, it's just that you forgive us the side of the cross. And so thank you, Jesus, that you did what you did, that your body was broken, that your blood was shed, that you rose again in victory, that we might be healed, that we might be clean, that we might be new, that we might be saved, that we might be rescued, that we might be in fellowship, koinonia, intimacy with you. So thank you for doing what you did, Jesus. We now take communion as as forgiving, forgiven people who are becoming like you. And Holy Spirit, I ask ask in this moment that you would make us a church that wants others to encounter a forgiving, saving, rescuing God. A God we don't need to hide from. A God who's better than we could even imagine. A God whose presence we're safe in. Like David, at the end of this psalm, would we we teach sinners your ways? Mission, why we can't be self-righteous, as as mission truly is, uh, you know, Evangelism, telling people about Jesus—it it truly is one beggar showing another beggar where we found some some costly, costly for the baker bread that's free to us. It's one beggar helping another beggar find bread, the bread of life. It's not that we're better than them; <laughs> it's just that you get, we we found the bread first. You gave it to us first. We didn't deserve it or earn it, but man. you've you freely given it to us, Jesus. And so, Lord, would we draw people back to you? Would we teach sinners your ways and call them back to you? Like the prophets in the Old Testament, like David describes in the Psalm, like the apostles in the New Testament, like brothers and sisters scattered throughout the world today who share their faith at great cost to themselves because they believe it's true. And if it's true, there's nothing more important. importance. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.